Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Munoz, CEO of the Experience Agency, D-Flash. Each episode, I bring another interesting person from business, arts, academia, who's doing some game-changing work. I'm super excited to have Jessica Bennett, who's a journalist and author of the Feminist Fight Club, to join me on the podcast today. Um, special note, we are recording this after the election, so thank God Joe Biden is now going to be our president, and we'll have our first female vice president, Kamala Harris. Super psyched about that. So it'll be a great conversation. Take a listen. Hey, Jessica, how's it going? Hi, nice to be with you. Likewise. Um, so at least the sky is a little bit clearer now because we will have a slightly better day come January 20th. So I'm in a very good mood. <laughs> uh, 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 but even though we're still trapped inside this pandemic, the podcast does not change. Yeah. So uh, Jessica, what was your first job? Okay, let's see. My first ever job was as a grocery bagger in my hometown of Seattle. Ah, and how old were you when you had this job? I think I was like 12 or 13. My parents, you know. That's like not legal. <laughs> Wait, is that not legal? I think I it, it must have been in Washington State. Whatever it was, it was legal. Um, but my parents were very much like, when you are old enough to work, you have to work. Um, so I also, I guess I did babysitting as well. I was never really that good at babysitting. It sort of kind of freaked me out. I would always call my mom. Um, so then, yeah. So then I was a grocery bagger for a little bit. And then ultimately I started working in, in restaurants when I got a little bit older. Uh, classic. So like, were you the waitress, holtress, or back of house? I, I've done all of it. Um, I started as a hostess. Um, I was I moved up to waitress, and then ultimately I was a bartender, which was definitely the most fun. Um, you, I've always said like I had more power as a bartender than in any other job I've had. <laughs> like everyone is looking to you, um, and you hold the decision about how quickly they're going to get their drink or if they're going to get it at all. And you control their enjoyment because <laughs> I really want that drink. So exactly. if, if I'm mean to you, I can wait my ass forever to get that damn drink and be not exactly. be happy. So. <laughs> totally. Um, it makes perfect sense. Um, it would also correlates to like what you do now because basically you control the story because you're now a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> I see yeah. It always works. See, the connections always work with the first job. <laughs> um, so um, how do we go from you know, being the bartender who's all powerful to a journalist and best-selling author. Like, what was that journey like? So I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. Like I was one of those weird kids that really young was like, I want to do this thing. And my parents were like, all right, whatever. Like, I guess it's good that she feels strongly about it. Um, but I didn't have any journalists in my family. I didn't know any. Um, it was just something that I really wanted to do. So you know, when I was bartending and, and doing all of these other jobs, um, I was either studying on the side or preparing to go to college to study journalism or, um, you know, working in restaurants when I first moved to New York so that I could work on paid as an intern at various publications. Um, but storytelling was always so important to me and writing was what I loved to do. So I pretty much, as soon as I got out of college, um, I moved back in with my parents for a little bit, um, working again in a bar just to save money because I knew I needed to move to New York. That was sort of like, if you want to be a journalist, you got to move to New York. Um, so I saved as much money as I possibly could. And I moved here and then I started working in a series of unpaid internships, which thankfully are um, no longer socially acceptable. 
<laughs> for others starting out. Cool. So you do, so you do the untamed internship side of the house. And it's amazing that you like knew what you wanted to do forever. I mean, I feel like when I was like a little kid, I wanted to be a rock star. Um, mm. And like, that was my thing. And my parents were like, um, under no circumstances. <laughs> so like, it's like, you will be a doctor or a lawyer. And I'm like, well, look what happened. <laughs> I, I think I'm closer to rock star now than I was when I was five. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, like, it was, it didn't make a lot of sense. And my parents, you know, when I released my first book and I had a book party back when we were still able to gather and it felt like sort of the culmination of a lot of the things I worked for. My parents flew out from Seattle and I just remember them being like, we don't know where she got this or like why she has always been so ambitious in this one particular thing. Like my mom's a teacher, my dad works in real estate. Um, it was it was sort of like self-motivated in some weird, weird way. And I'm not sure where it came from exactly. So, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, so many people want to be journalists and so, so many people want to write books. Like what was the sort of turning point for you? Like, how did you know that you like had gotten to a good place and in, in, in doing those and both those things? Well, I mean, I think it took a long time and it took a lot of sort of like, uh, shoe leather reporting grunt work um, and crappy jobs to like finally get to a place where I was really writing. So I so I, so I did various unpaid internships. One of them at New York Magazine when I first moved here, um, and then one at the Village Voice for an investigative reporter named Wayne Barrett, who has since passed away. But he was sort of like this oh. institution yeah. of the city, like muckraking political journalist, covered Donald Trump, covered Rudy Giuliani. Um, and he would send, you know, I learned so much from him, but he would send us on these wild use chases to like go get public documents and knock on people's doors. And we were sort of all around town really doing what they call kind of shoe leather reporting. And, and then I worked for um, about six months as a student journalist at the Boston Globe, which was part of a program they had for young people coming out of college. And I was on the uh, cops beat there. I don't even know if they still assign cops beats anymore, but it's like, basically you're on the overnight shift um, going oh, to crime. Wow. <laughs> and oh my it, god it was pretty awful um it was definitely not what I was uh meant to be doing and there was a period during that time when I was like do I really even want to be a journalist like I don't if this is what this is it's like going out in the middle of the night in freezing cold Boston winter and like knocking on doors after something awful has happened typically in neighborhoods where they don't see a lot of reporters when something good happens and it was it, it, I don't, it really clarified for me that that was not the kind of journalism that I wanted to do. Um, and, and for a period made me question whether I wanted to do it at all. Um, but ultimately then got my first real job that was like actually paid at Newsweek magazine. <laughs> and, and that was where it sort of became a real thing that was paying me to do. And I could stop moonlighting um, at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's interesting because I think there are those moments where it's like you know okay here's what I'm not gonna do that <laughs> right so, right uh and then when it's once that becomes super clarifying and then it's like okay well I have to put my energy towards things that actually well I will challenge and excite me but also make me happy versus doing stuff is just making my life a living hell 
Right. And invariably, once you make that decision, stuff usually starts to change. Like that's, it is very much like put that out of the universe. Like no more of this madness. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, okay. So you get to Newsweek and then how, what are you, what are you covering? How's that, how's that all, how do you end up with the Times? Yeah. So I was a general assignment reporter at Newsweek doing like a variety of things, um, but it was a magazine. So it was a little slower paced. You had more time to focus on ideas and stories and writing. You weren't having to like run off to a crime scene or a breaking news assignment. Um, and in many ways, it was like this cushy job that I could have only imagined previously. This was like let's see, early 2000s, I graduated from college in 2004. So it was still when magazines had a lot of money. Um, I will never forget at learning about the town car system that they had set up for if you worked past 8 p.m., you automatically got to call this service called Skyline and this like black limo style car would come to pick you up and take you home. And we would abuse that <laughs> so much. Um, but I just couldn't believe that they were like paying for my ride home. And then you know, serving us fancy meals on Thursday night when the magazine closed. But um, I, what I eventually found there was that I was struggling to rise up. Um, I had started with a group, a cohort of, of interns, who many of whom were men, and I could sort of track and chart the way that they had risen up the ladder more quickly than I had. And I started noticing ways that I would, you know, pitch a story in a meeting and I, I would sort of be ignored and then someone else would repeat that story and it would get assigned and then appear in the pages of the magazine under a man's byline. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, yes. I was just looking at the meme around this today that someone sent me about like, oh, that's a wonderful idea, um, Stephanie. Right. Uh, one of the men here will pick it up. Exactly. Exactly. And, and this was like, you know, before we had memes to like really know what was going on. And and so, you know, being interrupted in meetings, trying to figure out how to get my ideas into the magazine and eventually becoming really frustrated with the fact that I didn't feel like I was I was moving up. And so what ended up happening was that I started gathering with a, a few young, other young women colleagues and we were all sort of venting and expressing our frustrations. And we learned that at Newsweek magazine, 40 years prior, the women of the company had sued for gender discrimination. And this was the first lawsuit of its kind. And it was a lawsuit that paved the way for female journalists like us. And yet we had no idea of this history, of this story. It took a librarian at the magazine leaving a newspaper, like an old yellowed newspaper on one of our desks telling this story for us to be like, oh my God, okay, so like sexism is a thing. <laughs> and perhaps maybe we're experiencing some of it. It might be more subtle than what uh, the generations before us went through. Back then, when they filed the lawsuit, they were told outright that women could not be writers. Like you just, if you're a woman, you couldn't be a writer. Um, so you would deliver coffee and you would do research, but the men would always get the byline. And in our day, nobody would dare say that, but like you said, we noticed these subtle things where our ideas weren't being heard or seen and they were being stolen and there were so few female bylines. And so it was really learning that story of the women who had come before us that shifted my focus to covering women's issues and to write, to writing about 
women and the workplace and sexism and inequality and intersectionality and and all of these things that that ultimately would become my focus over the next few years, which then ended up with me joining the Times. Awesome. That's and and it's and and the world we live in, where it's just like really, <laughs> right? It's like just pay for the work that I do. Like, what is wrong with you people? With just, right. oh. um, and so what prompted you to write the book? So those women that I was meeting with um, when I was at Newsweek, we ultimately formed a larger group of women. Um, we were all sort of at the starting point in our careers. We were all struggling in different ways in various workplaces, most of which were male dominated. And so we started meeting um, every month to just support each other. And we would joke that the group was like a feminist fight club because we didn't talk about the group outside (laughs) of the group. And like, that was sort of wink, wink, funny. But at the time there were women in the group who really felt like if word got out that they were in this women's group, they would be penalized in, in their workplaces. And so, you know, 10 years pass or so, and it feels like we're more comfortable talking about these issues as a society, more com- we're more comfortable talking about these issues. Feminism as a word is getting more traction, like Beyonce is proclaiming herself a feminist, all these celebrities are calling themselves feminists. And it felt like the time had come to talk about the feminist fight club. And so what I tried to do with this book was I really wanted an advice book that could provide practical strategies that any woman could use in her day-to-day workplace existence that I didn't really feel like I had when I was starting my career. And so the book is part, um, you know, memories of my own fight club and narrative about them. But a lot of it is really rooted in data and research with tools and strategies for women to fight back against the bias that we still face. So awesome. And what's one thing from the book that you hope um, women who read it will get from it? Well, I think the major thing was, you know, there's like strategies for all sorts of things. And I try to give them names. So like manterruptions for when a woman gets interrupted (laughs) by a man or by another woman. It's twice as likely to happen for women. It's more likely to happen for women of color. Um, And I think that having these kind of silly terms like mansplaining is another one that I did not come up with, but it's like a term that everyone knows and you can immediately call it out and identify it. And I think that's useful. So I provide strategies for combating some of these things. But I think that the overarching theme is that I wouldn't be where I am today without the support of this fight club, these women who have been there through every twist and turn of my career and myself for them. And, and I really do think that there is power in numbers. You know, they're the only thing more powerful than a confident woman is an army of them. <laughs> and I really believe that. Um, and whether you are speaking up at work or fighting for something or feeling like you don't have support, these are all things that having a group um, and trusted allies who can support you can, can really help. And so I, I think that's what I hope folks will take away. Like anyone can form a feminist fight club or whatever you want to call your own group. Um, and for me, it's been incredibly helpful. 
Yeah, no, I feel like I know. I don't. I don't think I actually ever called them um, fight clubs, but I think I'm a, a few of these sort of yeah bad badass women groups. Like I saw a really great quote yesterday, and I put it in like like the four group chats that I'm a part of. Uh-huh. They're all like badass. And I was like, I highly recommend surrounding yourself with um, honorable, courageous, generous, supportive, no bullshit women who make you want to show up to their level. Above all, all the changes that that's been the best thing I've done in my life. And I'm like, yeah, it's yeah. so true. And I think. You know, you know, guys have the golf course. We've got the fight clubs. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we share the opportunities. We, you know, we give people the inside scoop and let folks know. And there's no shame in that. And, and they and they can be different groups. Like I'm in oh, all black women ones. Then mm-hmm. I'm in ones that are that are, you know, a certain age kind of range. But then yeah. I'm in multiracial ones. I, I do think one of the things that's important um, is that there has to be intersectionality of a lot of these groups where like, you know, we all kind of have to as women understand that we have interesting things to bring to the table and we can't just self-select to be in, in all the same groups. We do have to be in uh, in groups where different folks also lie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what was the response to the book that you thought was the most surprising? <sighs> um, let's see. I think, so I used humor throughout the book. It's, I feel like it's corny to say, to have to say that you use humor because it should be obvious if someone reads the book. But anyhow, I use humor throughout the book. And like the most visible sign of that on the cover is there's a little asterisk after the subtitle, which, so it's Feminist Fight Club, a survival manual for a sexist workplace. And then there's a little asterisk. And if you read at the bottom, it says, this book is 21% more expensive for men. <laughs> and that is not true. It's not really 21% more expensive. Um, That would be illegal, but it's a little nod to Mm -hmm. the wage gap or what, when it came out in 2016, that was the wage gap. Mm -hmm. And it's an effort to sort of provide a wink. And I think that, you know, even in the most progressive spaces, the word feminist and the words fight or fight club still evoke this kind of like man hater angry stereotype and I think that what some folks were most surprised by was that you were able to talk about some of these really serious and sensitive issues while also having a sense of humor about it and I've just always felt like humor is a way of opening up subjects that can be uncomfortable for people to talk about and so I tried to use that to my advantage awesome and it's so true I mean like you think about why some of the great comedians like George Carlin and Dave Chappelle um, are able to sort of get their message across is because they're actually being funny about it and when you think about like it's funny that like we actually make you know 65 cents on the dollar like what the heck like um um, there is, you know, th- th- we should take that with, you know, it's it's oftentimes a little bit easier to have it go down your throat if it's a, it's as funny versus like I'm hammering you over the head that oh you guys are horrible, right? Uh, totally, and 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 hopefully it, you know, like there's only certain people that are going to be attracted to this subject or to this book anyway, um, and they're probably they probably have good intentions if they really want to read it because they care enough to pick it up. Um, but sometimes I think people and in particular men can feel so worried that they're going to say the wrong thing mm-hmm. or say something offensive that they won't engage at all. And I think it's really important 
to know that it's possible to make mistakes and still have good intentions and be able to correct for those mistakes and, and do better in the future, but not simply to immediately write someone off because they say the wrong thing. Yeah, I think it's like, we appreciate the attempt. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It's like, no one's going to bite your head off for making the attempt. And, you know, this only works if we all work on this together. Like, we need as many male allies as humanly possible for this. Otherwise, um, we won't be able to make, this won't work. So, right. like, come on in, have a join the party. Like, the water's fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, looking back on all you've been able to do in the success of the book, what do you think you tell 25 year old Jessica? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think probably to trust my gut. I still have to tell myself that, <laughs> you know, even I'm almost 40 years old, I still tell myself that. But, I think I spent a long time doubting, you know, my convictions and in at, at work doubting that, you know, that really was a good idea. And it wasn't like me that wasn't good enough or my, that my writing wasn't good enough. It was like institutional sexism that in some cases was against me. And, and so I still try to remember that, that, you know, trust my gut because usually it's, it's right. Yeah, I think that's a thing, especially as women, we sometimes think that like, oh, well, really? I'm thinking, mm, like, no, go with it. Like, you yeah, yeah, yeah. for a reason. <laughs> right, like, it plays out in so many ways, subtle and unsubtle, from, like, our language to the way that we have interactions to, you know, so much of my job is about pitching things. And, like, if you pitch things, you're going to get rejected. Like, that's just the reality. You're going to get rejected and probably frequently. And you have to be able to develop a, a tough skin rather than turning it inward and thinking, like, you're a failure, a complete failure. <laughs> to just stop <laughs> pitching ever again every time it happens. You'll never pitch again if you do if you do. That. Right. Exactly. You're kind of like, okay, this is, a, this is a thing. It What had happened was I pitched and then guess what? I got a book. So there you go. <laughs> totally. Um, and, you know, obviously in this universe, of the pandemic, like it's all kind of insane. We just went through an, ins an absolutely bonkers election. Like, what are you doing for your self-care? Oh, no, I'm not doing good enough job. It's so hard right now because it's like you're home all the time. So like conceivably you're like, I am caring for myself. Like I'm working from my bed, but that's not <laughs> the same to remind ourselves that's not the same thing. Um, so for me, I have a dog and um, he really helps keep me sane because it forces me to get out of the house and go on walks and walking is really, uh, turns out helpful and healthy for my brain and mind. Um, and and without that, I sometimes just get stuck inside the house and don't, you know, speak to another human or feel fresh air for days on end. Yeah, it's it's really hard. I mean, I did the unthinkable and I actually bought a bike. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I never in a million, well, one, I was able to get one that cost us tiny fortune. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I was like, how much is this? Okay, you know what? Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have totally gotten my money's worth. Um, I got to see parts of New York City that I didn't even get. Yeah, uh, that's great. Uh, that's I think that's the thing. 
the kind of only good gift about all of this is that you get to you get to see different parts of New York, you get to experience different parts of New York. Like outdoor dining has become a thing now. Who yeah. knew? To go right. cocktails, the best thing I've ever Yeah, time. yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, it has definitely made me appreciate parts of New York that I have at times taken for granted and just like being outside with other people at a distance and being able to walk through the streets and like the close, the few streets that are now closed and all the restaurants um, or, you know, there's nothing to do. Like we don't really have anything to do. So at times just like taking a trip to a different neighborhood is fun. Like, yeah, you can go on vacation in New York. You're like, oh, yeah. I had no idea I could do this. It's, right. it's a thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a very unusual set of circumstances that we're all in. But I do love and heart how New York has been like, oh, this is what we have to do now? Okay. Here's yeah. what we're going to do instead. Like, <laughs> we're going to innovate. Like, I, I walked past this outdoor um, setup that a restaurant had. And it basically was another restaurant they had put in the street. Like yeah, it, it was constructed in such a way like it had a roof, it had built-in um, heat lamps, it had TVs. Oh my god, amazing! Built an outdoor sports bar. Yeah, village. I was like, what is the this creativity thing? of the city is also coming to light, even though restaurants are struggling so much. But there's so much creativity, and the other thing that I've loved is um, how much banging pots and pans has become a part of our daily existence now like we we were doing that at 7 p.m every day for the essential workers and then we were doing it through protests and then when joe biden was called uh last weekend i actually found out because i heard people banging pots and pans outside my window like before i could even turn on cnn or whatever yeah, that's the great part. I mean, it it is so again like the, the necessary mother of invention, but also like the distinctively New Yorkness of it all. Yes, <laughs> it's like oh, we're gonna bang some pots and pans. Yeah, like totally. You know, a lot of friends of my friends, and we were FaceTiming, and she's like, "Why are there pots and pans?" Like, I, I, I don't know what happened. And I'm, and she looks at the window, and she's like, "There are people outside." And then all of a sudden, my phone is blowing up on messages. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> like, I know. It, I really. I, I love it. It's like a community form of celebration that people can do out their windows that I'd never really thought about before. You're like, oh, we all have a, a computer that's stronger than what put put the astronauts on the moon in our pockets. But yeah, no, right. no, what I want to use to celebrate this pot and this pan. Exactly. <laughs> it, it is kind of, it is sort of wild. And so what's next for you? So you're obviously, I was still writing, but you're we're also in the midst of this insanity with the pandemic and going into 2021. What's what's up next for Jessica? Well, I mean, it's been such a weird time. I'm, I'm pretty excited about thinking of the ways that we're going to cover um, this next administration and the historic nature of it. And Kamala Harris, like I, I am just so wowed by her and I'm so interested in what she represents and I've been thinking about her extended family and her husband and all all the people who call her Mamala and like she truly represents like a a modern blended American family that we've never seen in that kind of office before. So I'm excited about thinking of ways that we're going to continue to cover her and that. And then I think I probably have to figure out what my next book is. So so far I, I haven't cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> uh well you, you gotta do one <laughs> yeah I think it's it's gonna be interesting with Kamala I mean like obviously I'm overjoyed yeah. um but I also think it's gonna be a it's a different conversation that I am hopeful that people say, say where it's like this 
is what a black woman looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a thing that is, I haven't seen that story yet. And um, I, I hope to see it because I think, you know, there has always been like, you have to be just so, I mean, as a black woman, you're drilled into your brain. You have to be 1000% right. perfect at all times. And I just love the fact that she likes wearing her chucks. Mm-hmm. Like, I know. Like she wears Tim's. Like that's, she comes up to Mary J. Blige, not Beyonce. Like there is a, for a generation of women who are, you know, 35 and above, the fact that she comes out to Mary J. Blige versus mm-hmm. Beyonce means so much um, because we all kind of were teenagers or, and I was like in elementary school when Mary J. Blige was coming up. So when you're that age coming up listening to this woman's music and, and seeing Mary J. Blige's evolution, um and what she what she represents as a woman in in industry and her own independence and being like telling her husband to kick kick rocks and Mm -hmm. like be like fine this is the life I'm gonna live and I'll take all my money here um like it it is it is remarkable versus uh, you know versus what I think sometimes people think about the myth of Beyonce versus the real Mm -hmm. and I think that like you know seeing the sort of again the realness of what it means to be a black woman like you know there's all this jibber jabber about you know black women over you know at least married folks in the U.S. Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. like yeah she found a great guy in her 40s and he happens to be a white dude he happens to be Jewish she happens to have kids and, she's like, right. and he, lo- he loves her and raises her up, which is a big thing that you don't see stories told about black women. So, like, and like she doesn't have, I mean, I love the fact that she doesn't have her own children. And clearly she's a family person. Like she has people that call her mom or they love her. But so often women are like, we're taught that what we are here to do is breed. Yeah, just breed. <laughs> and I just think it's so inspiring to have an example that has done things differently and and isn't like shying away from difference like it's so I feel like historically politicians who are different have been told by advisors or whatever the culture whatever to like hide that difference to like pretend it doesn't exist and I have really appreciated how she has not done that you know she's thanked black women specifically for voting the most reliable democratic base and and she pays homage to those women who came before her yeah, it's it's going to be remarkable to see how the coverage, and I hope it's good, thoughtful coverage. Mm-hmm. Great folks like you who just exceed it for it. There's there's all these there's been these ridiculous narratives around black women in business for yeah. so long, and I think, you know, you can't put her in a box, which yeah. is what you which we find with most successful black women. But like they find try and find a lane to like kind of stick her in. So mm-hmm. as someone who loves her Chuck, but minds that come to Garcon because. <laughs> I'm that girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's like, I, it's like, that's just you like the old ones. No, I like the really expensive ones. <laughs> um, I think that that's going to be really cool. And um, I'm excited to see where you guys go with it. Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, the face of media has changed so much in the last few years too. So I think part of it is that like, hopefully the people covering her, her rise and and the state of politics today look more like the people that represent America. <laughs> like I think that there are many more female political reporters, there are many more black reporters who are actually writing these stories now, and that makes a huge, huge difference. 
yeah, it's it's gonna be fascinating, and I'm psyched for it. But more importantly, I'm psyched that we will probably have a country in 2021. Thank God. So, because <laughs> it's a little worried there for a bit. Oh man, it's been a wild year. And they're gonna make us count for every 70 plus days to go, because Jesus. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I could keep chatting with you for quite a while, Jessica, because you're a delight. Um, like. Do you have a give and or an ask of the audience? I know. I wish I had really planned this out. Um, well, let's see. I would love for the audience to follow me on Instagram, um, which is just Jessica Bennett, uh, where I post most of my stories and stuff that I'm, I'm working on. And I mean, I was just so thrilled to see the voter turnout <laughs> in this past election. <laughs> and I guess what I would emphasize is that like, Every voice really does matter and count. And I love seeing people get involved. I, I'm a journalist, so I can't take a side. But, uh, you know, people being involved in their democracy is is so important. So whether that is volunteering or running for office or just learning about what it takes to run for office or exercising your vote, um, please continue to do it. Um, that's awesome because it's so necessary. I think we now realize that every single vote does count and all those folks are like, Oh, my vote doesn't count. Yeah. It does. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, Truly. 12,000 votes in Georgia. 12,000 yes. votes in Arizona. Yes. I know. I know. And like shouts to Stacey Abrams. Oh, of course my queen. <laughs> um, and Latasha Brown and all the other folks who, who yeah. were, like driving buses and driving out yeah. to the poles and providing water and snacks to the people who had like the pizza thing where you could like order pizza to people online. So they, were yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, all that stuff was so necessary, but again, every single vote um, absolutely matters. So it's so very, very key. Um, Jessica, thank you so much. You're such a delight. Thank you um, so much. This is so fun. Um, and we'll put all the details in the show notes to follow her on Instagram uh, <laughs> and check out her book, A Feminist Fight Club, um, and follow her at New York Times. Um, and that is our show. <laughs>